Welcome to Friends in Prison. I'm Claire Aronson, and I have 29 friends in prison. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm afraid that I just want to talk too fast. Uh, it is an exciting and a scary time. And uh, let me tell you why. I have one pen pal that was just released from prison and went into a halfway house. She was released on August 25th. And she said that I would hear from her around Halloween. So I'm very excited. That's when she's going to be headed home. So um, I have another friend I told you about a couple weeks ago, Juan. Juan's been in prison for 28 years. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about his story because I'm I'm really curious about rehabilitation. I'm really curious about what works in prison. You know, is it finding God? Is it uh, the people that are around you? Is it that support system from the outside? Is it something that can only happen internally? I don't know. Um, but we are going to delve into a little bit of that today. And I also found out some great news. Let me just... Um, Grab this letter and read it to you directly. This is my friend Daniel. He says, Claire Bear, hey you, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, I guess. I have some news, some good and some bad. Which do you want first? The bad news? Okay, well, I really appreciate you writing me a letter of support for the parole, but unfortunately, it didn't get here in time. Are you ready for the good news? I made parole anyway. So there is some great news. In fact, I was sitting around the dinner table telling my family, my friend Daniel is, you know, going to be released from prison. They were like, yeah, 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 we know. And I was like, no, 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 you don't know. I just found this out today. I was telling you about Juan. So Juan was one of the very first people that I started writing to in prison four years ago. And Daniel, maybe six months after that, I started writing to Daniel. And um, I've talked about both of them on the podcast before. So um, Juan should be getting out of prison in December, and I believe Daniel will get out in March. And there's some more that we have to talk about, about how that parole process happens and how we can be prepared, um, you know, to come back to society and to be successful. I guess one of my questions is, how does somebody end up in prison? You know, it, it seems... There are certainly uh, white-collar crimes, and um, there are certain crimes that I could see how someone can get mixed up in them. But as far as, like, gang life-level crime, how do you get mixed up in something like that? Especially if you had been corresponding with Juan like I have been, you go, here's this guy, this man who is respectful and interesting and kind how does this person that I can have a conversation with and and relate to, how does this person equate to that person who was a criminal? And um, so I think in order to understand rehabilitation, maybe we need to understand where these people were coming from and what went wrong in the beginning. So Juan has written some things in his own words, his own story. So I'm just going to read you his memory and his evaluation of how he got into prison in the first place. I'm going to give you fair warning. There is some explicit language, but not until the end of his story. It's not peppered entirely with that. 
but it is worth mentioning. So uh, this is Juan's story of his upbringing and how he got introduced to gang life. I was brought over to this country by my parents in hope of a better life. I was in my mid-teens, maybe. I came from a really small town where everyone had known each other for generations, where an old hacienda sits in the middle of this town, the hacienda once owned by the rich and powerful who came over from Spain. In front of this hacienda is a capilla chapel. My town was 100% farming, wheat, corn, and sorghum. It's a very poor community. But I was happy here, playing with all my cousins, cards, slingshots, football, some schooling. We had a one-classroom school. I had been told from my relatives and mom when I was even younger I used to run around naked, but I don't recall that. So one day I wake up in San Francisco. Wow, a small-town boy to a metropolis of hundreds of thousands of people. I didn't understand the culture, the language, or the reason we were even in the U.S. So I get enrolled in school, sixth grade, I believe. Boy, did I stick out. I recall one day I went to school in green pants and an orange sweater, not the cool green and orange colors, and boy was I made fun of. That was the first incident. Then I was bullied, and I didn't at the time know why, I still don't know why, because I didn't understand English. But the way I was being pushed around and the other kids laughing made me feel shame, fear, guilt, and anger. So I started to skip school, one day here, another there, until I stopped altogether. From the sixth grade till ninth, I would just stay home watching TV and learning English. I got really good at pretending to go to school and coming back from school. Homework, that was easy because there was never anything to do. On the few occasions that my parents found out I had not been to school in weeks or months, I mastered playing dumb. My response to any question was, I don't know. In hindsight, I didn't know. All I knew was that I didn't like school. Once, I was mugged by a grown man for some change. That was a horrific experience. Was that a traumatic event? What about the bullying and the mocking? Are those traumatic events? Define traumatic event. I became truant. After becoming truant and learning some basic manipulation tactics, as well as um, being the victim of the mugging and witness to countless other crimes, I became disobedient. When my parents would tell or ask me to do something or not do something, it just went in one ear and out the other. Why would I listen to anyone? I never saw any real consequences to myself or any of the crimes that I saw committed by others. Purse, sna purse snatching was one crime that I witnessed three or four times a week. People get beat down for one reason or another. Uh, another kid, kids my own age, were getting jumped into gangs, prostitution, and people shooting up dope. So I'm seeing all of this and it became normal to me. In hindsight, the United States was an aggressive culture, something I was not mentally or emotionally ready for. So, as they say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You could ask me, why not sports or something positive? I had bad experiences in school, trouble learning, and I had made a decision that school was out. I required discipline and responsibility. The streets asked for nothing nor were there consequences. My parents, teachers, counselors, or anyone that attempted to talk sense into me was useless. I didn't obey anyone. My parents worked from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. That meant all that time free of supervision. I knew better, and I was smart. So I thought my next step was 
delinquency. At this point, all of my experiences had defined who I was at that time. My values and beliefs were now that of a gang member. That meant that I was now taking on an identity other than my own. I started out breaking into cars, stealing pull-out stereos and anything of value. I'd go to bars and sell Kenwood and Alphans for 100 each. On a good night, I'd call it at five or six stereos, cash out and spend that on whatever till I needed more money. That turned into just stealing the whole car. Joyride for a day or so and sell it if I could. Use it to commit other crimes. Then that led to drug sales. I saved up a thousand, got a pound of weed, lemon zest back then, brought from Mexico, and I sell it by the ounce. One day a guy asks me if I have Chiba for sale. I didn't. I said nope. But I went out and got some. That was where the money was. Now I've got this attitude and swagger, money, car, females, and status. While I'm doing all of this, I'd still gangbang and gun guns were ready and able. At 17, I left my mom's house and me and two of my boys rented a house and it just became the spot, dope house, our house. No one ever really stayed there. That would be my life for the next few decades. Sorry to say that at 19, I killed someone and almost another person. In prison at 20 years old with a life sentence, that didn't stop me. I continued my life of crime, gangs, drugs, and prison shit. I thought, why not? I got life, so fuck it, thug life. I broke every rule in prison. I almost killed another prisoner three or four years in. I cut his throat with a box cutter over a bad call on a game of handball. I had turned off all emotions. Emotions make men weak. My life was now the prison system. I had to forget the free world and believing that I'd never get out. This will be my 28th year in prison. So I don't know if you remember, I've talked to Juan about what it was that turned his life around, that he felt ready to get out of prison and and come back into society. And why? Why was he seeking a pen pal like me? You know, just some regular, you know, I kind of think of myself like a soccer mom, even though my kids don't play soccer. <coughs> and he said it was the time that he had in prison. So first of all, the very process of, of aging, you know, he went from a 19 year old kid to uh, almost 50. And aging in that way will mature you. But also the very confinement of prison especially being confined for more years than you were out. It, it has a, a strong impact on you. I have to believe that's true, but I would believe that even a short prison sentence would have an impact on you. Um, and yet people keep committing crimes and going back to prison. So I think one of the things that makes me hopeful about Juan's you know, uh, ability for success coming out of prison is that he took that step to get out of the gang. He was jumped out. It was violent. He did need a hospitalization. And I just, I can't imagine saying, oh, you know what? Uh, all that behind me, I think maybe I will go back to the gang. 
he does have that strong family support. And it's very easy for families like Juan's from the way that he's telling it to be busy and to not see what is happening or not know what to do as your child becomes truant and delinquent and disobedient. So I can certainly understand now there's still this loving, supportive family, but he's in a place where he can appreciate it better. You know, I would just love to dial it down to all of the scientific information and do a study on how people get out of prison and stay out of prison. There are statistics that say up to 75% of people who are released from prison go right back into prison within five years. 75%, that's that's huge. That's not just, oops, I got mixed up in something again. Is there something special about that 25%? And of course, in, in different places, um, the statistics are different. I recently looked up Texas where Daniel is, and they said Texas has a relatively low recidivism rate that I believe it's, it's 25%, but that might be within the first year or three years. And the state with the highest recidivism rate is Alaska. And I I used to live in Alaska. I know that people can be moved from where they live and where their family is to the prison. Um, there's a, a prison in Juneau called Lemon Creek, and not everyone there is from Juneau. So my question is, when you're released, do you have the money to get on a ferry and go home? Or are you released in Juneau? What is... What is the preparation and how can somebody get a job? How can somebody get a place to stay and how can somebody get home? If you are immediately put into a scary situation where you don't know how to find food, you don't know how to find shelter, are you going to be more apt to fall back into those old ways, to call up on those old friends who might have been a bad influence on you? I don't know, but I would definitely like to find out and I just have a matter of months before my friends Juan and Daniel uh, go back into society. And I want to give them the best chance. You know, maybe if we look at it and we find out, hey, those people who were given a job, those people who were given a chance, those people who had a lot of support, maybe someone making sure that they knew how to balance work life and their own mental health and the parole officer, maybe those are the people who are the most successful. Maybe the people who go to church and get involved volunteering and making sure that they are building a really positive life on the outside, maybe those are the people who find the most success. If there is some commonality, if there is a magic formula, then I think that we have got to find it and replicate it and make sure that everybody knows about it as soon as possible. So uh, I think that's a real positive, optimistic note. And that makes me feel like maybe uh, we got to bring it down just a bit. There is a story um, that I was looking at. This one is uh, not out of Texas or California where my friends are, but this one is from Hartford, Connecticut. And in the AP, they start talking about this woman who had been in prison. And now that she has been released, the state is coming after her for what they call pay for stay. It means that once you are released from prison, you could be charged up to $250 per day that you stayed in the prison now that you've been released. So what's crazy to me is that 48 states have these same 
laws. And I just think because they don't enforce it a lot, because so many people sit there and go, well, I've never been to prison, so it's not something I would ever have to worry about. Why would we leave something like this on the books? So let me let me read to you a little bit about this from the Hartford AP, uh, an article by Pat Eaton-Rob. Two decades after her release from prison, Teresa Beatty feels she is still being punished. When her mother died two years ago, the state of Connecticut put a lien on the Stamford home that she and her sisters inherited. It said that she owed $83,762 to cover the cost of her two-and-a-half-year imprisonment for drug crimes. Now, she's afraid she'll have to sell her home of 51 years, where she lives with two adult children and a grandchild and her disabled brother. I'm about to be homeless, said Betty, 58 years old, who in March became the lead plaintiff in a lawsuit challenging the state law that charges prisoners this $249 a day for the cost of their incarceration. I just don't think it's right because I feel I already paid my debt to society. I just don't think it's fair for me to be paying twice. So I guess I would have assumed that if she had some legal monetary obligation, it would have been included as a fine or as some kind of monetary settlement to the state or to the victim. But to find out that the states are saying, hey, we're going to recoup these taxpayer dollars that people, you know, to pay for your stay in prison or in jail after the fact and kind of out of the blue strikes me as really odd. I I can certainly see why people would jump on this bandwagon and say it's not fair for me to have to pay for it. But I also feel like at $250 a day, which it it wouldn't surprise me that that's what it costs, um, running things through the government can be very expensive. And you have to think not just of quote unquote room and board, but also security and the classes and you know, medical, all of those types of amenities, which we have to offer in prison in order for it to be a humane place, certainly could add up to $250 a day. But if the state can charge that to someone, even if they could repay it, it just feels like more of an incentive to the state to keep you locked up. There's absolutely no reason for them to Uh, move things along quickly and get you out of the prison. And I just don't like that amount of power on the back end. The other part of it is when I'm in prison and a generous state might let me make $3 an hour, how am I going to pay $250 a day? How is someone like Juan, who's been in prison for 28 years, going to repay something like that? How when you've got to get out and you've got to make security deposits and you've got to save up for a car and you, I don't know, um, Daniel is talking about getting his uh, CBL, his commercial driver's license. And that would be really great, really useful for him. So I really don't know that everyone in prison is coming out with an education that's going to help them get a job. So That's another thing that they're going to need to spend money on. Can they do that with this 
you know, 80 something thousand dollar bill hanging over their head. Now, are they trying to collect this money from Miss Beatty because she inherited a home where they're going, hey, we wouldn't normally come after you for this if you were working a minimum wage job and just scraping by. But we don't like the fact that you've inherited a house. That, I mean, is that the sort of thing that we need to look into when we're writing our wills and make sure that we don't leave something to someone who's ever been in prison? How? What is the statute of limitations for which the state can come and take these? And I have to be honest, I did some Google searching and it was hard to find. If you Google search pay to stay prisons, there are these bizarre hotels in South Korea where you can pay to stay and live like a prisoner. So... Apparently, the stress is just too much, and they just go total silence, total uh, isolation. They've got their cell. They, they pass dinner through the little door at the bottom of the door, the little slot. That's not what I was looking for. What are these pay-to-stay laws that are in 48 states, $250 a day? I mean, this is definitely something that we need to know about. I... I would venture to say that I don't think it's a good idea. If you think that a criminal should be uh, financially responsible to the state or to the victim, I think that should be established at the trial when they have the opportunity to fight that. And um, I wouldn't want, if I did have an opportunity like this woman to inherit a house and be able to take care of my grown children, my disabled brother, my own self, and just at 58, I'm going to start in the workforce, I'm going to go out and get an entry-level position, I do need to worry about my own future, my medical care. And if I can have this extra help inheriting a house for my family, that might be that support and that strong foundation that I need to not fall back into my old ways, to not return to a life of crime, but to be a productive member of society. So, So let's talk some more about it. You know what I mean? That should be simple enough. Decipher the U.S. legal code and figure out uh, why people commit crimes after they've already been in prison. They know how bad it is in prison. They know how easy it is to get caught. And yet they go back to their old ways. Just something to ponder. All right. I'm sure we will be talking more about Juan and Daniel as they prepare for their release. I really appreciate you checking in with me. Do remember to tell all your friends about the podcast. I'm Claire Aronson. As always, find your own friends in prison.